All right, what is up, guys? Friends listening in wherever you are tuning in from. And of course, I've got some friends here that are gonna be joining us as we continue this series, Fact Check Part Two, Facing the Truth About Our Faith and putting some of the claims and beliefs that Christians uh, have really held to on the stand and fact-checking them. So last week we covered how can God be good and bad things still happen. And each week we're covering just some of the claims of how can Jesus be the only way? How can uh, a loving God send people to hell? Uh, And tonight we are launching into um, another one of those topics, but let me give a a quick story that'll give us some direction for where we're going. um, I've got a philosophy when I, when we've owned a couple of homes uh, that we've lived in and then we moved on to another one and, uh, and sold that one and moved to another house. And each time we bought a house, I've embraced a real philosophy. So this is just for free for anybody out there. And here's the way that I think about when we buy a house. We look for the home that everybody else is gonna be afraid of wanting because of something wrong with it. Well, in other words, if there's a home that has criteria or things about it that it's like, oh, there's mold in there or there's foundation problems, whatever characteristics are gonna make everybody else be like, honey, we are moving on. That is not the house. That is the one that we want or that I want and my loving wife goes along with or tolerates. That's why marrying well is important, fellas. But point being, when it comes to houses, that's just been kind of the offense that we've run. It's high risk, but it also comes with high reward and it allows you to get usually a deal because most people are scared away from getting that type of house. So uh, there was a chance a couple years ago where there was a house that came on the market and it was it actually was off market, but some friends had told us about it being available and we found out more about the property and it was what's called a distressed property. So there was like some issues with it. So we went and saw it and we had known that there was foundation issues, which is a big deal as it comes to a house. Uh, And we knew there were foundation issues, but they had fixed them. But because the foundation issues were so significant, although they had recently fixed the foundation, they hadn't fixed all of the problems with the house that had come from its foundation being off. So literally every single door in this house was jacked up. It was all on an angle. Some doors you couldn't even open because the foundation had shifted and it moved things around in the house and it didn't allow you to open all the doors. Windows were jacked up, there were cracks in the ceiling, all types of problems. The upstairs bathroom didn't work because the like plumbing had gotten jacked up with all the foundation stuff. So we go see this house and this is like a dream come true for me because I'm like, dude, this is gonna scare everybody away. This is a house that we should seriously consider but there was foundation problems. And before, you know, I made like a good deal, but I'm not gonna move my entire family into a house that if the foundation is not fixed, it's gonna continue, no matter if we fix all the doors, it's gonna continue to be a big problem for our family. So I begin to go like, hey, how can I put it to the test to make sure that the foundation that is here has been fixed, it is trustworthy, this isn't gonna continue going forward, we're not gonna, you know, in six months after replacing the doors, be like, the doors still don't open again or don't open again, how can I make sure that happens? So we began to like invest stuff I wouldn't normally do to a house that I didn't own where we were like, it's worth it though. Before we move our life into here, we need to test this and pay engineers and pay architects and have someone come out to make sure this foundation is fixed, it is solid, it is trustworthy, and you can live your life and rebuild this house on top of it. And what does that have to do with tonight what we're talking about? Tonight, we're continuing, and we are looking at one of the most key objections I think that a lot of people have, which is how can I know the Bible is the words of God? Or how can I trust the Bible? Hasn't been changed over time. Is it really reliable? In other words, is it a foundation that I can build my life on? Because that's, you know, Jesus even said his teachings were like a foundation that you should build your life on. And when we think about our faith, the Bible is a foundation that is at the epicenter 
and beneath all the Christian teachings. Like if we can't trust the Bible, then our foundation is totally done. And yet if we, for many of us, we build our life on these teachings and along the journey, maybe you were a Christian and you began to build your life on the teachings of the Bible and the teachings of Jesus. And then at some point in life, somebody came along and they were like, hey, you know, the Bible's been changed or there's contradictions in it or there's problems with it or it's really outdated. You can't build your life on that thing. And all of a sudden it's like our foundation got knocked and our faith just shakes. And does it have to be that way? And I believe the answer is no. And so tonight I just wanna talk about some of the key objections as it relates to the foundation of God's word and examine together, putting it to the test over whether or not it is trustworthy, can we build our life on top of it? And is it worth living according to? Because think about it for a second. If it's true, I think a lot of us entertain the idea of maybe it's not true. But I want you for a second to entertain the idea, what if it's true? What if every single part of it is accurate? It's true, it's true, it happened. It changes everything. And if it is true, then we shouldn't be afraid of examining and putting it to the test and asking the hard questions. Because if you're anything like me, you went to school or college or had people in your family that came along at some point and said, hey, I'm not sure you can really trust that. And tonight I just wanna put to the test the foundation of God's word. Is it something that we can build our life on? So I'm gonna answer three questions. Number one, what is in the Bible? Just a high level in case you've you know, never heard it or maybe you got this message passed to you from a friend. And you don't have kind of a great understanding of even what the Bible is. And uh, I'm sure you're a quick learner because you're listening in tonight. So I'm just gonna high level explain what even the Bible is, what it contains. Then go into, can I trust the Bible? Can I trust it? Has it been changed? Does it contradict itself? If so, how and where? And then what should I do with it? So let me start with what is in the Bible? Is it just a religious book? And just like, you know, any of the different religious books out there? No, you would expect me to say that, but here's why I would say that. First off, let me explain Inside of the Bible, the word Bible is, is kind of comes from a Latin word. It just means la Biblia. It's like the books. And a better way of understanding or thinking about the Bible is it's not just one book. It's like this library of books. It's a bunch of different books that are in there. And if you were to compare it to the way that our books currently we read, there's like a chapter when you read just kind of modern books today, almost each of the different books in the Bible are like a different chapter. So Genesis is a chapter and then Exodus is a chapter. And inside of the Bible, there's 66 of those books or chapters and they break up into two parts. You got part one, we call it the Old Testament. Part two, New Testament. Inside of the Old Testament, what's that about? Old Testament is about the people of God, nation of Israel, and God's relationship with them and his plan and his working through that nation. And then the New Testament is really the story of Jesus and everything after. Everything in the Old Testament, that's all before Jesus. Everything in the New Testament, that's Jesus and everything after. And one of the reasons why you're thinking, hey, when I read the Bible, it's kind of hard to follow. Like I don't exactly understand what's going on. It doesn't read like a Harry Potter novel where I can just, I can seamlessly follow. And yet people say it's this one storyline that God has written from beginning to end. Why is it hard to sometimes follow? And here's the answer why. It doesn't take place in chronological order. If you've ever opened it and you can actually buy a Bible that goes in chronological order, but the, the typical Bible that people read uh, you know, the average American has one, nine out of 10. The typical Bible that is there is uh, grouped up into different genres. And some of those genres, so in other words, if you were to open up, it's not grouped in order of sequence. It's like it's grouped based on the type of literature. You guys remember like types of literature, like you got poetry and you got fiction and nonfiction. 
in the Bible, they group it up into these different categories. So the first five books are called the law. That was like Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers. That's the law. And then you have the historical books. All this is in part one, the Old Testament. So you got the law, then you got the historical books. Then you got like poetic stuff. This is Job and the Psalms, which is like the, the Spotify playlist for the nation of Israel, kind of as poetic and there's repetition and imagery and, and it's really beautiful stuff. And then you have the prophecy books, which are those guys in the Old Testament that are always saying, let's say the Lord and they seem just a little bit upset. That's the prophetic books. You got, you know, major ones and minor ones, but the prophecy books. And then you have the gospels. That's when you get into the New Testament. So all of that was in the Old Testament. Then you get to the New Testament and it's still grouped by category. And you got these four gospels, which are just four accounts of the life of Jesus. And then you have the letters or the epistles, some people call them, but it's basically the letters of the guys who knew Jesus and walked with him. And then you have the uh, prophetic book or kind of end times, which is the book of Revelation, but it's grouped up into that. And so if you've ever found yourself wondering like, man, why is this kind of hard to follow? It's because it's grouped in by genre and yet it has one storyline written throughout it. It's pretty remarkable, honestly. There's 40 different authors that have written over 2000 years, the storyline. And the storyline is simply this. It's how God's from the very beginning of time, his plan of redemption, his plan to save the human race through Jesus. That's from beginning to end. And you may be going, well, then why is it sometimes hard to follow in there? It's like this. You guys ever seen the show, This Is Us? Anybody? Yeah? Okay, so you know in This Is Us, there's these moments of flashback where um, Kate will have this flashback to an earlier time in her life or even there's you know, fast forwards where Rebecca has something and they, they're back to modern day and then they flash back to an earlier time. And it can be, unless you know the storyline, it can be kind of hard to follow. In other words, when somebody joins you for the first time and they've never seen any of it and then they're tuning in, they're like, wait a second, why is she old in this shot and why is she young in that one? Because there's this bigger picture storyline that's going on. And unless you see the full picture, it's hard to exactly go there. That's essentially what the Bible is. That it's possible to see the full picture, but if you just pick it up and you open up to one chapter, you're not gonna understand the storyline. It's like a version of this is us. But the story that God has been writing, writing from the beginning of time is his rescue plan. And you can go to very early in Genesis and you see Jesus told about in Genesis chapter three, where God said, there's gonna come a day, I'm gonna get rid of everything evil and broken in this world. And I'm gonna send someone who will crush all of the sin, all of the pain, all of the brokenness. And he's gonna die for humanity's sin. And all throughout the Bible, that storyline is there. But that's big picture, what God is writing. And that's the uh, storyline of the Bible. So that's what's in it. Okay, so now the bigger question is, can I trust the Bible? Like, can I trust what it says? How do I know that it hasn't been changed? How do I know that it wasn't just made up by some guys hundreds of years later or this myth that was put forward? Like, how can I... Trust, because let's be honest, that's a really big and important question. Me being told I should trust it is very different from me being shown and compelled why it is trustworthy. So I want to attempt to answer two questions. The first being, is it possible that these are just myths that were made up years and years later? No. Here's why I say that. There's a couple of reasons, but the first one being this, and just listen to me in case you're tuning me out and you're like, oh man, no, my professor said this. Or some guy on YouTube who's like, the Bible stinks 09, gave you some comment that threw your faith off, tune back in because you may have abandoned it too soon. The reason why I say it couldn't have been a myth developed hundreds of years later, like the Da Vinci Code says, is because we have copies and we have versions of the New Testament and of gospel writings 
of the book of John specifically, that date all the way back to between 90 and 110 AD, which is right around the time of the life of John. In other words, we have this story in the gospel very, very early on and very immediately after Jesus and the disciples and all of that timeline was taking place. The idea that hundreds of years later, you know, people came and they showed up and they just made this story up because they just all wanted power and that's what they did. That is not possible. Is it possible that maybe the disciples, now here's a more interesting question. Is it possible that the disciples, I'm talking Peter, John, James, Andrew, they got together and they decided we're gonna make up a myth. It's gonna turn the world upside down. We're gonna make up, we gotta have a hero. Let's call him Jesus. No, I like Jesus better. Let's go with that one. And they just begin to put this plot together and they're like, let's get our story straight. It's gonna turn the world upside down and we're gonna end up all dying for it. But everyone needs to be cool with it because you know someday people will name their children after us and they're gonna be like, oh, Peter, for thousands of years. Yeah, let's all get together. And they got together and they began to plan out how they would make up this myth that all of them would die horrifically for. And the myth involved a Jewish peasant from a place you can't identify on the map, but it was so compelling that all of them went to their deaths and hundreds of others did as well. And it turned the world upside down. And today, every atheist, Buddhist, Christian person on the planet dates their calendar by the date of this man that they made up. It's a pretty genius plan for some fishermen who could barely read and write. And so is it possible? Anything is possible. Is it logical or likely? No. What do I mean by anything's possible? Like when it comes to history, you just, you got to know this. You cannot prove anything historically. And, and you may be going, yeah, you can't. No, you can't. You can look at the evidence and based on the evidence, judge what's a reasonable explanation for that. Like, for example, uh, I would guess most of you believe in George Washington, right? Anybody not believe in George Washington? Why do you believe in George Washington? Because history books, because somebody told you about it and you read about it and you believed in there. Have you ever met George Washington? Do you know anybody who has ever met George Washington? You believe in George Washington by faith and you know what's possible? It's a hoax. There was never George Washington. There was never any founding fathers that are here. We're not even really real. We're all in the matrix and everything I'm doing right now is not real. Is that possible? Anything is possible. Is it likely? Is it probable? Is it reasonable enough to live your life according to? No. And as unreasonable as it is to reject the idea of George Washington, it is unreasonable to look at these fishermen disciples and think, I bet they came up with a myth that would turn the world upside down. And it wasn't because they would get any financial gain. Nope, they lost everything, including their own lives. And they did all of it and went to their death saying, this is not about some movement I'm starting all of them died for the same reason. I saw a man die on a cross and he was buried in the ground and then he came back alive and you can kill me, you can do whatever you want. But he said, if I trust in him, I'm gonna have eternal life. And every one of them lost their life for that. Could it have been a myth that they just got together and made up? Sure, it's possible. It's not reasonable. Okay, so maybe they didn't make that all up. Maybe the Bible has just changed over time. Like maybe some of the versions and, and the stories and maybe they got kind of added and changed along the way. There's two problems. One I already mentioned. We have manuscripts that go way back into the first century, into the times and right after the disciples and everyone was there and at the time they were there. The second problem is 
the number of the manuscripts. Like we have so many thousands of manuscripts and they all, they don't tell like very different stories. Like, oh, there's this version of the Bible and then there's this version. They all tell the exact same story. Here's what I mean. When it comes to manuscripts, you may have heard some of this stuff in school before. You may have heard of this. When it comes to the idea of like Caesar, Caesar's lives, there's a book called Caesar's lives. How many versions and copies of Caesar's lives do you think we have? You may have heard of this book. We have 10. If you, hey, Plato, anybody heard of Plato? Not the stuff that you play with, like the guy, Socrates. How many versions of Plato do we have from the ancient world? Like how many copies? Seven. Tacitus, the Roman historian, He's responsible for the reason we know so much about Rome and that history. How many do we have of him? 20. If you studied history, you, like me, learned that, hey, Tacitus, this is true. You can take it to the bank. We have 20 copies of that. Homer's Iliad. How many do we have of Homer's Iliad? 643. That's not bad. It's a lot better than the other ones. How many copies do we have of the New Testament? You guessed it, Lauren. 24,633. We have an enormous number and all of those to a 99.5% are entirely the same with the exception of, of a couple things. Some of them have some spelling errors. Like one has John with two N's, one has John with one. Where it's like, oh, what? that's the type of changes that make people go, I'm not sure we can trust the Bible because one guy who was making a copy put an extra N on there. The other ones, this is again, 99% of any of the differences between those thousands of manuscripts have to do with the order of words. One says Christ Jesus, and this one says Jesus Christ. Which one was it? In other words, the differences don't make any difference in terms of actual beliefs. Let me give you some of the examples of like, because there is 0.5 where the actual word is different. There's 0.5% where it actually makes a difference in the reading of the sentence. And I remember in grad school, we'd actually study these. And you would think like, dude, that's exciting. We're about to look at like the text that's like, oh man, this says Jesus had a girlfriend named Sarah. And this one says he, you know, was in a biker gang, all these different, maybe these are going to be some really exciting differences in the versions. Here's one of the more exciting ones. It comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. We have one copy of it that says, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. We have another copy that they found that says, but we were infants among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Is it gentle or is it infants? In Greek, the, the word has one letter difference, napioi or apioi. You decide. I think it's infants. The vast majority of manuscripts and all the copies say like it's, it's uh, infants. But could it be that it was gentle? Sure. But that doesn't make any difference. So anybody and any parent or any friend or any uncle who comes up and is like, you know, the Bible's been changed. There's so many differences. You can say uncle. One, do you know the differences do not make any difference at all. Two, have you ever studied anything on that subject? Because by him even phrasing it like that, it reflects the fact that he's ignorant. It is intellectually lazy to say that the Bible has been changed to any degree that is untrustworthy. There's not a single belief, doctrine, teaching of Jesus or in the Bible that changes. And even the differences like that, we have thousands that we can see like, oh yeah, it's probably infants, but it could be gentle, but it doesn't change anything. The Bible is trustworthy. Could it have been made up myths by men years later? No. Could it have been made up on the scene by Peter getting the gang together? Maybe. Is it reasonable? No. Has it been changed over time? No. 
The real reason, candidly, while people don't want to accept or believe that the Bible and they throw up this smoke screen of like, you know, it's been changed over time. You can't trust it. And there's so many translations that it's outdated. It's not because the Bible contradicts itself. It's because the Bible contradicts them. It's because they think if I really accepted this is true, I may have to change things or my girlfriend may stop sleeping with me or I don't like what it says about homosexuality. So I'm going to hide behind the smoke screen of, you know, we can't trust that thing anyways. It's 2000 year old book and you, know, you can't believe that. And it's not because the Bible came up in error. It's because the Bible contradicted them. So what's in the Bible? And then we looked at can I trust the Bible? Yes. What should I do with the Bible? You should read it and apply it. Read it and apply it. First, that involves understanding like how to study it. It means you pick up God's word or you pick up the Bible and you begin to read it and you begin to know what is the eternal truth in the verses and the passage that I'm reading. Don't read it like an eight ball. And candidly, this is how I see a lot of Christians read the Bible is they like take it and they're like, I'm gonna shake this thing and should I move to Houston to take this job? And then they open it up and they're like, oh man, this says Hoshapheth moved to Baal. Oh, I think maybe that means Houston. That's not a good way to read the Bible. Or people will think like, am I supposed to marry Sarah? And then they flip open and they're like, look, and there, look at this verse. It says, Sarah, Sarah, it's, she's in the Bible. And it's like, yeah, she's in the Bible. That doesn't mean you should marry Sarah. And this is how people would think about it. And that's a bad way to read it. You should pick a starting point, pick a gospel and begin to read it and begin to ask the question, hey, what is the eternal truth? Or what was the truth then? Like, what was he saying then? What's the truth always? And what is the truth now? Like, how does this apply to my life? Begin to look through and see what are the principles that apply. The second thing that is involved in as you're reading it is you begin to read it through the lens of the New Testament and the work of Jesus on the cross. In other words, when it relates to the Old Testament, how should we read it? We read it in light of the New Testament and the work that Jesus did on the cross. In other words, when I come across verses in the Old Testament that are like, and then if you send this, if you do this sin, you need to get three turtle doves and a goat and you need to kill them all. No, you don't, unless you want Peter coming to your house. Those through the lens of the New Testament were all finished by Jesus on the cross. The sacrifice was made by him. So I read everything that I go through through the lens of the New Testament. Also, as I go through it, you need to know that there, there's a lot of things in the Bible that it's not condoning or encouraging, it's just describing. In other words, there's a difference when it says, hey, this is what you should do and this is what they did. Does that make sense? Like there's times in the Bible where it's not telling you you should do this, it's just telling you what happened. Like Solomon had a thousand wives. It's not saying, hey, this is goals, guys. You need a thousand wives. It's just describing what happened. God wasn't for that. And we learn in the New Testament, when we read through the lens of the New Testament, we're like, oh, when Paul talks about what marriage should look like in Ephesians chapter five, husbands should love their one wife and lay down their life and sacrifice. Huh, Solomon didn't get this thing right. And that's the way that we see that. We don't see it as like, oh, this is kind of, you know, how I should see the way that I should live my life because there's a difference between what happened or what you should do, the Bible laying out, here's what you should do, and here's what they did in that moment. So other tips, here's what would be good to know. So 
what translation should I read? Because you may hear this, like there's so many translations, which one should I read? We just did a Views from the Porch, which is our, our podcast you can find on iTunes or Spotify and go check out the latest episode or one or two ago on Bible translations. What translation should you read? Whichever one you're going to read. In other words, is NLT and NIV and ESV? You pick one. If you like New King James or you like King James and Shakespearean English, you do you. But whichever one you're gonna pick up and read, and if you want more information on even why they're different translations, go check out that episode of Views from the Porch. But pick up that, start in a gospel. Matthew, especially if you're new to Bible reading. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, those are first century accounts of the life of Jesus. And they were written by men who just said, I just saw this guy die, get buried. He came back alive and I have to record his account because it's true and the world needs to know and begin to read. There's resources that we may put out either on our blog or online that are other places you could start. There's something called Join the Journey where you can join lots of us here. It's a Bible reading plan that gets emailed to you every single day and it has a devotional and scripture. Go to jointhejourney.com. You can go there to find out more about like just the Bible as a whole. Type in Bible Project on YouTube. We have some friends that run something called Bible Project. It's excellent. It's phenomenal. And you can find out more about Old Testament books. And you could just type in a book of the Old Testament and it'll give you a high level explanation of, oh, this is exactly what is going on there. But the point being, begin to read it. Do it with other believers in your life. This is why we encourage small groups around here or we call them community groups for you to have other people in your life so you can read a passage and go, man, I have no idea what he's talking about right there. Like why did God tell them to do that? Or what is Paul saying there? And you would have other people in your life who could come alongside of you and be like, oh man, here, let's answer and ask those questions together. And let's find answers together. Get a good study Bible. Uh, a study Bible is just something that has different um, ways or explanations and background and context in the verses or right underneath it. So you can know more of what is going on. But point being, begin to read and apply it. And what you will discover if you will do that consistently, your life will change and it will change for the better. And you can put it to the test and you're gonna experience that it is a foundation you can build your life on. And if you will begin to read it and apply it, I promise you, your life is going to change and change in every way that you want it to change. There was a study done in 2009. It's actually been continued since then. But it was a study that um, basically was done over like 40,000 different Christians in America, ages eight to 80. They took everybody and they were like, hey, we're gonna have you all uh, give us some information and the kind of questions that they asked them on the survey ranged from uh, how often you look at pornography to how often you read your Bible to you know, how often was the last time you were drunk and just kind of like some somewhat personal questions and these people filled it out and they sent it in and they discovered something really fascinating. Again, all these people were Christians. They discovered that as it related to reading your Bible, there's like a tipping point in life. In other words, if you read it one day a week, there wasn't much change that they saw in their life. And the likelihood of just kind of like reoccurring sin taking place in their life, of getting drunk and still looking at porn and sleeping with a girlfriend or sleeping with somebody outside of marriage, all of it remained kind of the same. And if you went to uh, two days a week, it remained kind of the same as well. You were statistically just as likely as everyone outside of the church. If you went to three days a week, same thing. And then they discovered there was a tipping point. And that tipping point was four days or more. And they said, everyone who reads it four days or more was 57% less likely to get drunk, 
61% less likely to use pornography, 70% less likely to engage in sex outside of marriage. They were 228% more likely to share their faith with people. They were 230% more likely to disciple other people. They were 400% more likely to memorize scripture. What does all that say? It says that those who read their Bible consistently, four days or more, they experienced life change. They were transformed. If you don't believe me, for the rest of Corona, begin to read your Bible every single day. Pick up one of the gospels, begin to go through it and begin to study and see if your life doesn't begin to change because here's how it changes. We're about to land the plane. When you begin to read the Bible and read it consistently and not sporadically and kind of once every now and then, you begin to be introduced to the hero of the Bible, Jesus. You begin to see him on like every page. Like a lot of people think, oh, the reason why your life would change is because like the Bible's this rule book. And if you read the rule book every day, you probably know the rules. So you'll do what the rule book says. No, you read the rule book every day and you discover the Bible's not a rule book at all. It's a book about how you and I can have a relationship with God And how from the very beginning of time, he's been on a rescue mission to save every single person out there from the pain of sin and death in our world. And inside, when you begin to read, you're introduced to the person of Jesus. And you know what the Bible says happens whenever that takes place? The Bible says, you begin to transform. Second Corinthians chapter three says, you begin to change. The more you see Jesus, your life begins to change from one degree to the next to the next. And any person who reads the scripture and consistently reads it. Their life doesn't change because they know all the rules. Their life changed because they see Jesus in it from beginning to end. Can you trust the Bible? Yes. And if you do, and if you apply it, you're gonna experience a life like you could hardly even imagine. And you could build your life on the foundation of his word. And when you do, your life is gonna transform and you're gonna see Jesus on every page. Let me close with this just to emphasize that point. In um, Luke chapter 24, we're told of a story that takes place right after Jesus rose from the grave. In other words, right after he was crucified, towards the end of the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, we're introduced to an interaction that Jesus has. He, He rises from the grave, he comes back to life and he hasn't totally shown everybody himself yet. He hasn't totally introduced all of the disciples. He's alive, hey, This is real. And we're told that there were two of his disciples who were walking on the road. It's called the road to Emmaus. They were just walking from one town to the next. And Jesus sees them and he begins to walk up to these two guys. And it's like a seven mile walk, we're told. And he joins the conversation. But we're told for whatever reason, they couldn't see Jesus. They didn't recognize him. Like they didn't know exactly who he was. For whatever reason, he kind of like disguised himself and Jesus shows up and he's like, hey, what's up guys? And they were like, oh, you know, we're just grieving the fact that the Messiah we thought was the king just died. And he begins to enter in this conversation. He's like, what are you talking about? And they say, are you the only person? Let me just read the verse. Are you the only person? The only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know about the things that have happened here in these days? And he says, what things? In other words, they're like, hey, are you the only person that hasn't read the Jerusalem Times? There's a coronavirus going on, bro. There was a guy we thought was king and he died. We thought he was gonna save the world and save the nation of Israel, which is what they said. He was sentenced to death and they crucified him. We hoped he had been the one that was gonna redeem Israel. What more, it's the third day and all of this took place. In addition, some of the women, uh, they amazed us because they went to the tomb of Jesus this morning 
but they didn't find his body. They're telling Jesus this entire thing. And he's just like sitting there listening to the entire thing. I love it. They came and told us they'd seen angels and that Jesus was alive. And some of our companions went and they found the tomb empty just as they had seen. And then Jesus jumps in and says something that is so remarkable. Think about this conversation. Oh, foolish ones, how slow to believe you are that all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into glory? Wasn't what happened to Jesus, him dying, him rising, all of that told in the Old Testament and the writings and the prophets. And then beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Think about that conversation for a second. Jesus begins to go. All of the Old Testament, all of the Bible, everything you've ever read was all pointing to me. In other words, people have a tendency to look at the Bible and they're like, oh, it's a rule book. I need to follow the rules and I need to do whatever it says. You know what that puts at the epicenter? You. You're not at the center of the story of the Bible. And neither am I. And Jesus says the entire thing, it's all been pointing to me. Chapter, or part one, Old Testament, all of it about Jesus. Part two, all of it about Jesus. It's all been pointing to him. And I just want, think about the, what that must have been like when he sat there and he walked through. How all of it was pointing to him. How Adam, remember how Adam in the garden, he was tempted and he failed. Jesus, also in the garden, was tempted, but he passed his test and he went to the cross. How we're told about Noah, how God comes to Noah and he says, look, hey, I'm gonna allow you to build and take a piece of wood and any person who trusts in that piece of wood lifted up will be saved from destruction. So Jesus, through a piece of wood and him being lifted up on a cross and all who trust in that piece are saved from destruction. And he just walks through. You know, I could just see him on the road. He's walking with his guys. He goes, think about Abraham. Abraham in a moment where God came and he said, hey, I want you to take your son, your one and only son. It's in the verse. I want you to take him and sacrifice him. And he takes him to a mountain called Golgotha or Mount Moriah. It's where Golgotha is. And miraculously at the last moment, there's a ram that appears and God provides a sacrifice. Don't kill your son. How is it all not pointing to Jesus and God who would, as a father, sacrifice and make the provision by giving his son on our behalf? Think about David. David killed the giant of Goliath and Jesus killed the giant of sin and Satan and death. Jonah spent three days in the belly of a whale and Jesus spent three days at a tomb. All of it has been pointing to Jesus. He is the lion of Judah. He is the lamb and the sacrificial lamb that died on behalf of you and me and all of humanity. He's the rock. He's the light. He's the king. He's the prophet. He's the shepherd. And it all points to him. And Jesus looks these guys in the eyes and he walks them through all of it. And if you begin to read the Bible, you'll be introduced to the one who it's all about who life is all about. And the one who frankly is the reason we trusted, who gave his life for you and for me. Every week listening, there are people who not only have not understood what the Bible is, they've never understood what the gospel, the good news, that's just what the word gospel means. What that is, and here, let me just give it to you. It's that God came to this earth in the form of Jesus and he loved you so much, he died for you and for me. He gave his life. We didn't deserve it. We don't earn it. We could never earn it. And he gave his life and he died. And then he rose from the dead three days later and he defeated death. And on that day where he rose, death 
died. And when he rose, it was like the payment for sins. It was like the check cleared. It was like the credit card when you're paying for something and it goes through and you're like, yes. The payment was enough. It was more than enough. And now anyone who puts their faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross, accepting that God, you paid for everything. It's true. And I can believe it. And you gave your life. And if I'm gonna have eternal life with you, it's because you gave your life for me. Anyone who puts their faith and trust in what Jesus did for them has eternal life and experiences the fulfillment of every prophecy and all of the points and everything that the scripture is about. And tonight, if you've never had that moment, this is your night. And the God who is there has had you stumble listening onto this right now and wherever you listen to this because he hasn't forgotten you and he gave his life to prove and show that. Let me pray. Father, thank you that every word of God in the Bible points to the ultimate word of God, which is Jesus. Thank you that you are the sacrifice for sins. You're the greater David, the greater Adam, the greater Jonah. You're greater than all of them. And every page and every word points to you, our King. I pray for anyone listening right now who candidly sits behind the smoke screen of, I don't want to believe it because it, if then, I'd have to change. You would pierce and penetrate and they'd stop wondering what would I have to change, but could it be true? And you would show to them that it is. Thank you that you gave your life and that anyone who trusts in that can have eternal life. We worship you now in song, amen.